Morena. Hola. How are you all doing this morning? Awesome. That's good. <laughs> Great. Hey, um, well, as Craig mentioned, this is the third week of our series in the Book of Esther. And those first couple of weeks have really set the scene for where we're going to be today in um, chapter 4. So I just want to quickly remind you what's happened so far, some of the main characters, just in case maybe you've missed one of the last two weeks or if you're just joining us on the podcast. So um, in chapter 1, we met the proud, um, excessive, unpredictable King Xerxes. And he seems to rely on advisors to help him to know what to do next, whether they um, give wise advice or not. We really briefly met Queen Vashti, and all we really know about her is that she was beautiful um, and that she was brave enough to stand up to her um, drunk husband, King, and she paid the price by being banished from the kingdom. Then in chapter 2, we meet cousins Mordecai and Esther, and they're bound together by family tragedy and loyalty and uh, their nationality as Jews. Mordecai is the wise father figure, and um, he takes care of Esther and guides her and cares for her even when he can't prevent her being taken uh, for the king. And he holds a significant position in the palace, remember, and he's loyal to the king, and he seems to be quite insightful about what the people are alike around him. But we've also learnt that um, he hasn't returned to Jerusalem with some of the other Jews as they were commanded to do by God um, after the exile. And that for a long time he's been hiding his Jewish heritage and he's told Esther to do the same. Now the arch enemy of Mordecai is a guy named Haman and he's a really self-centred, proud man, um, and he can't stand it when Mordecai won't show him respect. And this brings out his wicked and aggressive side. And then, of course, there's Esther herself. She's an orphan, but she's been brought up in a loving but quite unusual home with her cousin. We've seen her so far as quite compliant and passive. She's um, followed the instructions of Mordecai, and um, she seems to just go along with what happens to her, and we haven't seen her um, show any resistance to the things that have happened to her so far. She's stolen for the king's harem, and she somehow immediately knows how to win friends and influence people, even in that difficult place. And on encountering the king, um, she finds his favour, and she's made queen. So that's pretty much where we're up to. But last week as well, we heard that because of Mordecai's disrespect of Haman, this has triggered Haman to put in motion a plan to annihilate all the Jews. And through his use of superstition, using something like um, dice called pur, um, a date is set for almost a year's time to annihilate the Jews, and a law is put in place with the king's seal on that. So today we're going to see how Mordecai responds to what is now a catastrophe that he seems to have, at least in part, caused. There is great danger now, not only for him, but for all of the Jews, not just in the city of Susa, where this story is being told, but in all the provinces, um, including those Jews that have gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. There is a lot to be afraid of as we enter chapter 4 here. So let's just have a little chat about fear and danger before we go any further. 
Um, I'm sure you all know about the fight or flight um, response that we have. When we're in danger and, or we fear something suddenly, we have a natural response to either stand and defend ourselves or to run away, right? And hopefully we make a quick decision in that moment about what the best thing to do is. But I wonder if you knew that there's a third response to fear and danger. And that's the freeze, where you freeze and you do nothing. Um, it's when your brain might be kind of whirling in response to all the danger that's around you, um, but you can't actually do anything. And um, this is an automatic response. Um, it's not a conscious decision, which is a bit of a shame because I don't think the freeze is a very useful response to danger but I think it might be my natural response, unfortunately. Let me give you an example. So a couple of years ago, we were down country visiting family, and we were travelling, and it was really late in the evening, and we were travelling between Palmerston North and Dannyburg between our families. We've done this trip dozens of times, and um, we take a shortcut. Once we get to almost to Woodville, we take a back road that takes us almost all the way to um, my parents' place, and it's a really, most of it's on a one really long country road. Um, it's a bit windy in places, but there's one really long straight, but it's, it's quite narrow and um, not very wide. For some reason, this time, we had two vehicles, I can't remember why, and I was driving one, and I had a couple of kids with me, and Simon was driving the other vehicle, and he was a little bit behind us. So we were travelling along, and we got to this long straight, and I'm going about 100 kilometres an hour, and it was dark, obviously no street lights out in the country, and I remember that there had been a car quite a way ahead of me going the same direction, so I'd had to have my lights on dip. So anyway, all of a sudden, there was this flash right beside me, of an object, of black and white, something that zoomed past um, me in the middle of the road. And it was just so close. I swear it was within millimetres of the car. And it gave me a heart attack. And I could see that it was a calf, maybe about six months old, because it was, you know, reasonable size. And it was in the middle of the road. And my brain just um, suddenly was telling me that there was danger, because this animal was there. Um, my heart was racing. I knew I'd needed to slow down. I was thinking about Simon behind me. I thought I should put on the hazard lights, but I couldn't find the button, and Simon's probably going faster than me, and what if he hits it, and where's that hazard light button I need to stop? And all these things were racing through my head. But I felt like I couldn't do anything other than slow down a bit. But um, I was, had been nearly at the end of the straight, so I went round the corner, found a safe place to pull over, and at this point, I couldn't see much of the road behind me, and Simon hadn't been far behind, and then, but his lights, he never came around the corner. So at this point, I'm really panicking, and I'm thinking, um, he's going to be in hospital, what am I going to do without him? Because obviously, he's hit that animal, and who knows what else has happened, so I have to turn around and find out what's happening. Um, and I was freaking out. I turned the car around, and to go back and find out what mess we were going to find. And in my mind, I was still, it was still racing. I was thinking about accidents and hospitals and getting the ambulance, and basically I was trying to work out how I was going to live as a widow from now on. <laughs> um, and I was just feeling quite terrified about what I might find. Well, it turns out that Simon had had a near miss as well with this animal. And, but he jumped straight into action, of course. He'd quickly found somewhere to pull over, and he was already on the road herding it, 
off and um, trying to find a gate. And it turned out that the only gate nearby was somebody's front lawn. So he shooed it in there. Um, did try and knock on the door, but nobody answered. So in the morning, they were going to find an animal in their garden. Whoops. But at least it was off the road, right? Meanwhile, I am just pretty much watched Simon save the day and tried to calm down my racing heart. And I was still trying to find that hazard light button so that if it happened another time, I would know where it is. It's like the biggest button in the car, but hey, I couldn't find it. So the moral of that story is if there is ever a really dangerous situation where you need someone with quick reflexes to jump in and save the day, you better hope um, I'm not with you. <laughs> so back to our story now in Easter. So we join the story in the face of extreme danger just on the horizon and the fear that the Jewish people are facing. And so today we're going to see what kind of response Mordecai and Esther have to that danger. And we're going to find that Mordecai is a fighter. But in the face of fear and danger, Esther's response is to freeze. We'll see Mordecai's wisdom um, and... um, and challenge to Esther to try and shake her into action. And it has some wisdom and some challenge for us as well. Because I think Mordecai knows that if God is on their side, then it doesn't matter who is against them. So grab out your Bibles, whether that's on your phone or in in the book, um, and we are going to to read that. So you can follow along with me. Um, Now, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, which is my go-to version, but if you read from a different version, that's awesome. Just let the differences in wording make you curious as we go. So I'm going to read the whole passage that we're looking at today, which is just the first 14 verses, so that we can get the flow of the story. I'll comment a little bit on some bits as we go through, and then we'll hone in on a couple of verses at the end. So chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, so... Some first observations here. Mordecai has gone really public with his sorrow and lamenting about what has happened and this law that's been put in place. So everyone now knows that he's a Jew because he's publicly aligning himself with the Jewish people here in their grief. And he and the other Jews are um, making their feelings known really visually through putting on sackcloth and ashes, which are mourning clothes, and um, audibly as well with the weeping and wailing and crying out. And note that the Jews had also started fasting. And Mordecai is making his feelings known in a really public place. Do you notice that he's in the city and he's gone to the king's gate? And I wonder if part of Mordecai's personal um, bitter grief is um, maybe a little bit of guilt or regret because his stubborn actions of not bowing to Haman have not just affected him, but now put the whole Jewish nation in peril. So let's get back to the story in verse 4. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, 
She was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Now, I think that this shows how sheltered Esther was in the palace. She got told about what was happening with Mordecai, and she's really worried because obviously something really serious is happening, but she has no idea what's going on. So Esther tries to send these new clothes to Mordecai. Um, So perhaps that's so that he can then come in the king's gate and come and explain to her, but for some reason he refuses to accept the clothes, um, so she sends one of her attendants to find out more. Let's look at verse 6. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy, and to plead with him for her people. Now, I'm a bit of a detail person, so I love the lengths that Mordecai has gone to here to make sure that Esther knows exactly what is going on, right? He, ta- he gets Hathak to tell her everything that's gone on, including the exact amount of money to be given to the king. He gets hold of a copy of this law that's been put in place about the Jewish annihilation, and he asks for it to be read to her and explained so that she knows exactly what the implications are for the Jews. And he has a plan, all set to go. Mordecai's in fight mode, right? He instructs Esther what to do and what to say and to go and see the king. So, verse 9. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. So Esther is really getting what Mordecai is asking her to do. Esther knows the inner workings of um, her position and the throne and how the king responds to people. And she knows that there are some big implications on her if she's to go and see the king, as Mordecai has asked. I think she's fearful at this point, and I think um, that actually her fears are justified. Because I imagine that Esther has to walk quite a fine line as queen. She's got some status, and she's found favour with the people around her and with the king. Um, But she's not there by choice. She's actually far from free. Esther points out that it's fully outside protocol for her to approach the king, and that alone could make him mad. And although she's his wife, she hasn't even been called to him for an entire month. And remember that part of um, Esther's protection mechanism at Mordecai's advice has been to hide the fact that she's a Jew. So she's been withholding information from the king. And we know that King Xerxes demands respect He's got a temper, he acts quickly and harshly, and he acts on his advisor's advice, even when, without really thinking it through. So the danger for her here is definitely real. But maybe Esther can't quite see some of the things that are um, going for her at the moment. 
So at this point, she's been queen for actually nearly five years. So she became queen towards the end of the seventh year of the king's reign, and it's now the beginning of the twelfth year of his reign. So she's been queen for a while, and as far as we know in the book, um, that's um, gone well, and he's been pleased with her. And yes, it's been a month since the king has called for Esther, but after nearly five years for it only to have been a month, um, shows, I think, that she's still in the king's good books. Also, if she does think that maybe the king would be happy to see her, there is this way that he can extend the scepter and that she would be safe. She doesn't have to be put to death. So I think in her fear, Esther can't see the bits that are to her advantage at this point. In her fear, she freezes and she tells Mordecai, I can't do what you're asking me to do. And her brain is screaming that it's just too dangerous. And that's when Mordecai comes back with his answer to Esther's fear and he's still in fight mode. Let's see what he says starting back at verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So I really want to hone in on um, those last few verses now. Um, Some of the phrases in them struck me in a new way as I read it this time, and I think they can speak to us as well. The first couple of points I'm going to make are real warnings um, for Esther, but I think perhaps also for us as well. And I'll just go over those two quickly. And then the next two points are challenges about how we can live um, out our faith that are also relevant to us. So let's break it down. The first phrase, if we could bring that up there, cool. The first thing that Mordecai says in verse 13 is, do not think you alone will escape. So Mordecai's pointing out to Esther that she is not safe either. She's also a Jew, so she's also at risk of this uh, deadly edict that's been sent around. He points out that just because she's queen and lives in a palace, it doesn't grant her immunity to this law that's been passed. You know, in reality, I think that um, anyone who valued their own life um, would probably think twice about breaking into the palace and killing the queen. Um, But in saying this, Mordecai is pointing out to Esther that she is a Jew too. They've hidden it for a long time, but it's part of her identity. All the Jews are at risk from the least to the greatest. And the outcome is going to directly affect Esther. She can't think that she can do nothing and ignore this and that life will go on as before. Okay, so how can we relate to that today? Well, let's look at that phrase and um, word it for us today. Cool. Um, Do not think that because of whatever it is that is your area of privilege or security that you will escape. I wonder what it is that you lean on for security. What areas of privilege do you have just because of who you are? What is it that you take for granted will keep you safe in life? What if, as we looked at the uncertainties in the world around us, someone like Mordecai said to you or me, don't think that just because you have money or come from a certain family or grew up in a Christian home or live in a certain place, or look a certain way, or have a certain job, that you will escape the troubles of this world. 
health issues, family difficulties, conflict, financial troubles. There's no privilege or security that can protect us from life's troubles. There's just no escape from that. But the good news is that we can have a certain trust in God. Through all of life's difficulties and uncertainties, he doesn't change. He's faithful and able, and he cares for you and will be with you through whatever you face. And we'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. In John 16, 33, it says, uh, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay, the second phrase that Mordecai says is, if you remain silent at this time, you and your father's family will perish. Here he's pointing out that there will be effects on Esther if she says and does nothing. How can we relate to that today? Well, if you remain silent about some unjust situation that is around you, what are the consequences on you or those or others that they will face? Where is it maybe that God is asking you to speak up for injustice? Who might God want you to speak up for? What happens to someone else if you don't speak up for them on their behalf? What happens inside of you when you stay silent? Now I'm thinking about everyday injustices that we can encounter like bullying or racism or harassment or devaluing of life or ridiculing of faith or maybe it's just the joke that someone makes at someone else's expense that everyone else is laughing at. Franklin D. Roosevelt once said, courage is not the absence of fear but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. What is it that's important for you to speak up for today? Okay, let's take another look at verse 14, and these next two are the ones that I want to spend a little bit more time on. Because next we see that amidst all of what's going on, all the scariness, the danger, the fear, that God is still at work for his people. So the third phrase that I want to pull out is that Mordecai says to Esther, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. What does that mean? What is he saying? Well, Mordecai here is showing his faith in that God would be at work for his people even if Esther didn't step up to help. You know, we've heard that Mordecai um, wasn't necessarily a devout Jew and that he hadn't followed God's instructions to return to Jerusalem after the exile, but he would have known the promises that God had made to the Jewish people through Abraham and through others. He would have known that God had promised the Jews that they would be back in the promised land and that God would be with his people. In fact, he would have been really well aware that um, after the exile, that some of those survivors had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and reclaim the land. And God had made a way for that to happen. And you can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're really great books to read. So when Mordecai says, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance will arise from another place, I think that's a declaration that he believes in God's promises 
and that God is working to fulfill them even then, and he won't be stopped by the likes of Haman's plans. So he is encouraging Esther to step up and to be part of God's plans, but if she doesn't, God will still make a way. There's a quote from a commentary that's just going to pop up, and it says, Though Mordecai is not pictured as a pious man who was righteous in his dealings before God, he at least had a sense of the covenantal relationship between God and Israel. He was aware that the promises to Abraham, Moses, and David would not be fulfilled if the entire nation was wiped out. Therefore, he was confident that God would act on their behalf. You know, in the promises that God had made to Abraham and David and others is the promise that one day the whole world would be blessed through a descendant of Abraham. Now, Mordecai would have known this promise, but it's likely that he, he wouldn't have understood fully what it meant. But today, we know that it meant that one day Messiah, the one who was to come and save God's people and the whole world, Jesus Christ, would come through Abraham's line. He would be of Jewish descent. So God was not about to let the Jews be annihilated because that wasn't in his plan. Okay, so how can we relate to that today? Okay, if you remain silent at this time or do nothing, do you have faith that relief and deliverance for a situation that's in God's plans will arise from another place? In other words, do you believe in God's promises? So here Mordecai's faith is a challenge to Esther, um, but also to us. When things are going wrong, when they feel hopeless, do I put my trust in God's promises? We had um, Psalm 56 read to us earlier. Thank you for that. In verse 3, in verse three, David sets an example for us when he says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. You know, there are hundreds of promises in God's word, but just a few that, um, that we can hold on to today is that God says, I am with you to his people. That's us. When you need wisdom, you can ask God for it. God is for us and not against us. Nothing can separate us from God's love. God will never leave you or abandon you. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are sealed for eternity as God's children. God is faithful and he's able to keep his promises. So I wonder, um, what's the promise that you hold on to through the no matter what of life? The unexpected turns, the unwanted outcomes, the stresses, the uncertainties, the stuff that Tama was talking to us about. What promise do you cling to because you know it's true? You know, if you have a promise that you hang on to, you can pray it back to God and claim it with confidence. Then no matter whether you're fighting life's battles, trying to flee from them, or just frozen, not sure what to do next, you can have God's truth to cling to. Maybe you don't have a promise to hold on to for where you're at right now. Well, can I encourage you to pray and ask God to show you something as you read his word and then read it looking 
for what he will show you. For me, at the moment, there's a situation um, that I've been worried about recently and this year, and at times it has made me fearful for um, this situation for the future. And the promise that I'm holding on to is in Philippians 1.6, that I can be confident that God who began a good work in me and in the other person in this situation will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And while I wait for and trust and ask God to do that work, I also hold on to the promise in Jeremiah 33.3 that if I call to God, he will answer me. So I'm praying and I'm asking God to carry on his work in that situation. And both of those promises help to bring me peace at times of worry and when I'm anxious and fearful. So Mordecai is asking Esther to step up and do her part to help the situation for the Jews. And yet here he is trusting in God's faithfulness and power that God's plans and purposes will come to pass, even if Esther was to refuse. This brings us to um, the last part of verse 14. And the fourth um, and last phrase that we'll look at are the words that are probably the most famous in the book of Esther. It's when Mordecai says, And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Everything in Esther's life in the last five years seems to have led to this very moment. This very moment in chapter 4 is the reason that Esther is in the palace and has found favour with the king. She's positioned at just the right time and just the right place to work on God's behalf in this moment, this crisis, to bring change and justice and hope. You know, she probably felt like her life had been completely out of her control and that she had been powerless these past five years. But God had been working behind the scenes all along to give Esther just this opportunity to advocate for his people. So how can we relate to that today? Well, most of us are probably never going to be royalty, right? But who knows that you have come to whatever position you have today for such a time as this. Where has God put you? Where do you have influence or a voice? There will be a place. How might you be part of God's plan in that place right now? It might be your class. It might be your group of friends, your position at work. Maybe it's amongst the other parents where um, your kids are. Maybe it's a leadership position you have. Maybe it's even in your wider family, or maybe it's with your neighbours. Acts 17, verses 26 and 27 say, from, from one man God made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. You know, God knows exactly where you are and why you are there or here right now, whether it's easy or whether it's hard. And verse 27 of Acts up there shows us God's purposes for this, and it's the same desire that he has for everyone. Wherever you are, whoever you bump into, 
you have the opportunity to choose to live in a way that helps others want to seek God and perhaps reach out for him and find him because God is not far from any one of us. For me, I just really recently in the last couple of weeks started a new job, a part-time job. And um, so I'm wondering, what opportunities does God have for me in this new place? Who will I interact with? Who will become my friends there? Who might God call me to speak to him about there? Who might need God's encouragement that maybe I can pass along to them? And it's changing how I think about where I am and the people that I have around me. You know, today, God's faithfulness and power is still trustworthy, and his plans and purposes will still happen whether we cooperate with God or refuse to do our part. The amazing thing is that our amazing God invites us to be part of his plans, and he gives us opportunities to work on his behalf and be used by him. How incredible is that? Every time you use your gift to build up the church, every time you share a little bit of your faith to someone who doesn't know Jesus yet, every time you read the Bible and do what it says, every time you pray and seek God's will or ask for God's guidance, you are working with God to participate in his plans and purposes. You know, he can do it without you if you don't take part because he's God after all, right? But it means if you don't, that you will miss out on being part of it. But how amazing that he invites us to be part of his plans. He gives us a role to play. He trusts us with showing others who he is and what he's about, and he lets us share his heart to others. So just to round up, um, we leave um, verse 14 of chapter 4 with Mordecai and Esther on a real cliffhanger here. There is great danger. There is a lot to fear. Mordecai naturally wants to fight this um, edict, this plan that's in place, but Esther is frozen in the fear of what might happen to her. So will she now find her voice and stand up and take action on behalf of her people? Well, if you've been using the bookmark and um, doing some reading during the week, I know that you know what happens next, right? Um, But here in verse 14, it all hangs in the balance. And that's where we often live, isn't it? In the uncertainties of not knowing quite what's going to happen. So maybe there is something that's making you fearful in life right now. Um, Maybe it's a need for work. Maybe it's fragile health. Maybe you're not sure if your grades are good enough this year or um, you're not sure what you're going to be doing next year. Maybe there's a relationship that's struggling. Maybe work is just not going well right now. Or perhaps there's conflict happening to you or to others around you at the moment. Well, Mordecai's uh, challenge to Esther can be a challenge to us in our uncertainties and fears as well. So where you are right now, even if it feels scary, who or what do you need courage to speak up for? What are the consequences to others or yourself if you don't speak up for injustice that you see around you? What promises of God are you holding on to at the moment? What is God inviting you to participate in for his kingdom? And where does God have you right now 
that you can be part of his plans. Let me pray. Lord God, I praise you and I thank you that even when everything around us is falling apart or or feeling terrifying, Lord, that you are still in control. You are still with us and you love us more than we can imagine, Lord God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to speak up for those around us that are vulnerable or need our support. Lord, would you give us strength to hold onto your promises when things aren't going well and courage to take the opportunities that you give us to be part of your plans alongside those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, before I go, it just occurs to me that um, if you are in a situation where you're feeling fearful or anxious in life at the moment, you don't need to be alone. Um, There are people here that would love to pray for you in that. So if that's you, then maybe after the service you could grab one of the pastors or um, one of the elders or their spouses or come come see me. Um, There are people that would love to pray for you if that's the way that you're feeling. Thank you.